everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Here to There. This is Laura, and I'm joined in the studio by Laylee to wrap things up on season one. Yeah, so across our first nine episodes, we really wanted to let our commuters and guests explain from their points of view what they see as being the opportunities and the challenges that they're facing with respect to transportation and living their day-to-day lives or um, doing their work, carrying out their advocacy, etc. And then... We wondered whether these perspectives are recognized or shared by those who are actually responsible for transportation policy in Minnesota. Right. So today we'll take you through three commutes back and forth between Minneapolis and St. Paul with transportation leaders at various levels of government, including recently retired Met Council Chair Adam Dunnick, State Senator Scott Dibble, and MnDOT Commissioner Charlie Zelli. So what do you think, Laylee? Did we find that there was alignment after all? It was really interesting how closely the issues that these policymakers discussed, kind of organically, actually, I mean, they really tracked along with those that we've heard from our guests across the first nine episodes. And especially when it came to the challenges that we face right now um, with our transportation systems and our ability to kind of move forward in in advancing things like um, transit and multimodality. And I think that that's a good thing because it indicates that they're really is an opportunity for building more robust coalitions to begin addressing some of these challenges. You know, some opportunity to bring together people and groups that perhaps have not been working together as of yet, but share some common ground in terms of the challenges that they face. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And, you know, we also saw the flip side, which is that I think we've covered some issues in the podcast that perhaps policymakers are either less aware of or for whatever other reason aren't able to prioritize right now. Um, Accessibility really comes to mind. It didn't really come up at the forefront of any of these last conversations, but we know just from after we aired that accessibility episode and were contacted by a number of state legislators and people working in local government who are interested in doing accessibility walks themselves, that there is really an interest in knowing what's maybe unknown right now. Yeah, that was really cool. So is the fact that all of our guests, including the very busy policymakers in today's episode, they all made the time to speak with us and our listeners. And they did so with no hesitation and with a lot of enthusiasm. And this kind of openness bodes well for future work. So with that, let's join our ride-alongs, first with a light rail trip with recently retired Metropolitan Council Chair Adam Dunnick. We rode with Adam from Minneapolis to the Met Council office in St. Paul. Hello. Hi, how are you? I'm good, it's exciting to be here with you. Yes, thanks for having me. Yeah, and this is the first time that we've hit the rail. So this is pretty exciting to be on the light rail and who better to be with than our Met Council Chair. Here we are on the Green Line platform with Adam Dunnick. He chaired the Metropolitan Council from 2015 through July of this year. If you're not familiar with the Met Council and its work, Adam will give you some background as we hop on the train. Can you just root us in a a brief understanding of what the Met Council is and the role that it plays in all this? Sure. As we get on the train here? Yeah. It's a a question I get asked pretty much everywhere I go. The council (laughs) is in a lot of ways unique in terms of the organization we are, both here locally certainly and as well as nationally. We are the regional planning organization that focuses on population growth and job growth and looking out to the future. That's kind of how the council was formed. And when the merger occurred between the Metropolitan Council and the the Regional Transit Board and the Wastewater Commission and everything was put together in the mid-90s, then all of a sudden we also operated a transit system, Metro Transit, and we operated a wastewater system. And then we do a handful of other important uh, roles in the region, such as grants to cities and counties for environmental cleanup and livable communities and things of that nature. We work with the cities on their comprehensive plans. Um, we run our own HRA, which is one of many housing authorities here in the Twin Cities area, as well as we play a, a role in regional parks. So we do a little bit of planning, we do a little bit of operating. It's a hard organization to explain exactly what it is we do. And some people say we have you know, too many many hands and too many pots I guess you could maybe say but our argument is is it's really important to integrate all that work too if you're looking at housing and the future job growth and things of that nature that's connected to transportation planning it's also connected to wastewater investments that were made you know decades ago and that sort of thing so it's a unique organization but I like to describe it as an exceptional organization and we're lucky that our uh, forefathers that came before us had the, the foresight to put an organization like this together 
We met with Adam in late July, just as he was getting ready to move out of his role at the Met Council. Basically, we want to just hear from you as you uh, reflect on your time in this position. Mm -hmm. Are we having all the same discussions over and over again in new ways, or are we actually advancing? I think it's kind of somewhere in between. I think that there is a lot of the discussion that continues to happen and that there's a lot of progress that needs to be made. But at the same time, we have been advancing our system. We've been capitalized. Build out of the transit system has grown since, certainly since the blue line was built back in 2004 and since the big transportation bill of 2008, there's been an additional investment in the region where we are not seeing it as much as and where we're seeing some of the challenges in the regular route bus service and how do we make our, our bus system better how do we help it fit into the existing modes? Mm -hmm. How do we take some of the rail investments that, you know, at the time that we built them, weren't exactly transit-oriented development focused or focused on people moving and that sort of thing. So how do we, how do we both look back at some of the investments we've made and improve them, but how, and then how, how do we continue to build out, you know, with a regional vision? We're at this point in the region where we're continuing to lurch forward, which so to me that's progress. Projects like the Orange Line are moving forward. Southwest LRT is moving forward. We're continuing to advance arterial bus rapid corridors like the uh, Penn Avenue corridor right now is underway. And, and the A-Line, which is right adjacent to us here on Snelling Avenue and then down on Ford Parkway into Minneapolis, that line has shown uh, enormous success. And so we're excited about some of the progress that we have been making. You know, the Metropolitan Council doesn't make all those decisions in a vacuum. I know that there's a lot of people that think that or there's rhetoric around that that the legislature will say, oh, the Met Council is doing this. Well, the Met Council doesn't do a lot without working with cities, counties, the legislature, and other stakeholders. That partnership's important between the council and between the counties. And, you know, what we really have to hope for is that the counties in the long run can maintain a sense of regionalism as you watch CTIB kind of go through their... CTIB is the County's Transportation Improvement Board, a body which was dissolved at the end of this year's legislative session. While it was in existence, CTIB was made up of five counties that collected a quarter percent sales tax to build new metro transit lines. Now counties will be doing any such sales tax collecting on their own, including potentially doubling the quarter percent to a half percent. What would that come out to? Great question. Just looking at Hennepin and Ramsey County, going to a half percent sales tax would bring in another 80 to 90 million dollars a year in those counties alone. Even the process of disbanding, there was a lot of parochialism. There was a lot of people saying, well, my county needs this and my county needs that. And that's, that's understandable. That's who they represent. That's what they're supposed to do. But we've been fortunate in this region to have, you know, I think, really strong county boards who look at the regional picture and don't just sort of draw boundaries around their, their county lines and say, okay, my investment begins here and ends here. Why should you care about a transit system? And there's a lot of reasons. One is you're bending the traffic congestion off of the freeways and highways and, and roadways for everybody else. So there's a strong uh, argument for that. There's also an environmental argument in terms of transportation is the largest uh, source of carbon emissions in the state. And it's very well known. That when you look at what we're trying to do in terms of the environmental future of the state, we need to figure out how to both clean up the emissions of the vehicles that are out there and get more vehicles off the road if possible, get more people doing active transportation from walking, bicycling, taking transit, and everything else. If you want to hear a more in-depth discussion about reducing emissions from cars, check out episode two, where we talk about electric cars with Andrew Twite of Fresh Energy. Also check out episode six, where we talk about different ways of getting around and got some practical advice for incorporating more environmentally friendly transportation options into our lives from Mary Morse Marty at Move Minneapolis. There's an economic argument in terms of more broadly what it means to the region. So if you're talking about where jobs are gonna locate, where companies are gonna expand or retain more of their employees and things of that nature. Broadly, and I think the, the Twin Cities chambers get this, frankly, in a better way sometimes than the state chamber does, that it's a, it matters a whole lot to the employers and to their employees that there's a strong transit system here. And it used to be where people would pick the job and then that's where that, that, the job that they would do would then drive where they live. And the, those, those dynamics have completely reversed in the last decade or two. Now it is, where do I want to live? Do I want to live in Seattle? Do I want to live in Denver? Do I want to live in Minneapolis? Do I want to live in Chicago? You know, those types of things. So we're competing against other regions that way. According to research from the University of Minnesota, we could be looking at a shortage of workers to the tune of 100,000 individuals by 2020. This makes attracting and retaining a much more urgent conversation. 
If you're interested in the topic of an aging workforce and its effects on housing, transportation, and much more, listen to episode four on livability. I know that there's a constant drumbeat about, well, hardly anyone takes transit. Look at the uh, empty buses. Look at the train that's not always full to capacity. And it's not about getting everybody to take transit. It's about getting enough people to take transit and have provide options for people so that it's accessible, there's mobility options. Because we, you know, I think that's also a hard part we struggle with in this region is we are both serving people who don't have a choice, that that, that is the primary way they move around, and we're always trying to uh, bring ridership in that, that they do have a choice. They can choose whether they want to pay more for parking or drive a car and pay, pay more for gas. But as the economics of driving have changed in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, we have seen a, an increase in ridership. And I think there's less stigma amongst young people about taking transit too. I mean, historically, you think about someone who wants to ride the bus or take transit, and, and not everybody is really interested in doing that. There's definitely a stigma around that. And, you know, we call it transit preference or, or transit bias, mode bias, that kind of thing. And it's very well known. So Another reason the transit system matters is if we want to be a major league city, if we want to be on the national, international stage, and host events here and be an attraction for convention business mm -hmm. and have a thriving region that people you know, want to come to. Mm -hmm. You know, when we're, we're, we're doing things like planning for the Super Bowl, planning for the World's Fair, which is, a, you know, it's not a done deal, but big national, international events, they're not always sporting in nature, sports events in nature. I mean, it's also important to have a strong, thriving arts and restaurant community and that thing, that sort of environment here. And a strong transit system, you know, really, it's an important contributing factor to, to being that kind of type of region. So how do we stack up right now? When you look at cities similar in size, makeup, how are we doing? I would characterize it this way. In terms of the output, I think we punch above our weight. I think in terms of the product, we have a transit system that's very competitive. It's, it, it's very efficient. It gets high marks from our customer service. Uh, we were just awarded an award from American Public Transit Association last year for System of the Year. We do a really great job with being creative and doing sort of innovative things here. Uh, where we're short, frankly, is uh, political support and financial support at times. And that's been a frustrating point. As uh, we pull up at the Capitol Station. Yeah, yeah. Pull right from the <laughs> Timing could not be better. Let's go yell at somebody. This is both the good part and the challenging part about the Met Council. The good part is, is we have to work with everybody. The bad part is, is getting consensus from everybody can be a challenge and take time. So we have to plan projects that a county agrees on, a number of cities agrees on, the legislature, which changes every two or four years, have to have some say in, although that's started to shift now and they're pushing those responsibilities off onto the county. So that's where our transit system, I think, is lacking. When you look at the regions that have invested billions in the last 10 years or so, they're going to start to leapfrog us in terms of population growth, job attraction, employer support for transit. But all those regions, they all function a little bit differently governance-wise, too. Sure. Some of them, cities or counties can just impose their own taxes. They don't have to ask the legislature for that support. Some of them have done it by referendum. So you could take a look back at how we've gotten to where we are and, and second-guess some of those decisions along the way. Um, but ultimately, I think in terms of the output, this is where I get really frustrated when people talk about the governance of the Met Council and what can we do to improve the Met Council. And I just want to take people out and show them the amazing system we have. Now it's more about how do we expand and enhance that system, how do we make it better where it could be better, which is what I think the arterial bus rapid transit map is about. How do we take the LRT lines here uh, who nationally do really well in ridership, shown really impressive development numbers. I remember debating with a legislator about the system in Dallas, and we try to compare ourselves to yeah. Dallas, that they have, yeah. I forget how many miles of, of light rail, and heavy rail too, they have a bunch of commuter rail, and their ridership is, is, is not very good. And that's not to say that if we spent those same resources here, our ridership wouldn't be good. I actually think the opposite. I think if we, ha if we had that same amount of investment here, I think we would, we would run a better system here. So how do you commute? I mean, we're on the train right now. Is this something you take quite a bit? Yeah, I, I'd probably take the bus more than the train just because of where I live. I live in South Minneapolis, so I try to take transit anywhere from two to four days a week. It depends on my schedule and availability. My regular bus is the 53, and I both take it myself, and I actually take my kids on it too because my kids are in daycare right across the street oh, from my work, which is great, and they enjoy taking the bus. 
occasionally I bicycle. I did that more uh, before I started the job, and in the first year, it's just been harder on my schedule, frankly, to try to try to bike. And then occasionally I drive. I try to do everything. I walk a fair amount too, which I just find to be kind of relaxing. Sometimes it's nice to come sit on the train and fire off emails too. I, I love the train. I know it's Lily's favorite. That's about me. My my preferred mode. I like to take the six downtown, and you know my husband' office is there, and I can mm-hmm. meet him or catch a Twins game or. And then we just have one car downtown to take home. It's really ideal, I have to say. Well, you mentioned Rondo earlier, and that just sparked a thought, too. We talked about the Rondo neighborhood of St. Paul before we had the tape up and running. In case you're unfamiliar, Rondo is a community that was divided in half by the Interstate 94 construction in the late 1950s. There are some great initiatives underway to reconnect this area, including a project called Reconnect Rondo that's working to install a land bridge over the highway. You can hear more about this in an interview featured in episode three of Here to There. One of the things that I'm passionate about, the council's passionate about, is as we are um, you know, updating and, and uh, enhancing and expanding our transit system, it's important to look at transportation investments as an investment in the assets of communities. And historically, transportation investments have been used as a way to cut out communities. It's been, it's been used as a way to overpass communities. Those sorts of decisions have have decided which communities have access to jobs and opportunities and which don't, and which are at the table during community engagement and which are kind of like run over. Um, and that's the system we, we've inherited. And so as we're moving into the next phase of our transit build out, I'm very conscientious of that, I know the council is, and we need to think about making transit investments where they're needed and where we can connect people to opportunity. Um, you know, we have some of the worst racial uh, disparities in the country. It's a, it's a huge problem for this region, and it's, a, it's, it's bad from a reputation standpoint, and obviously it, it's, it hurts people, it hurts, it hurts families. He's right. Listen to our very first episode where we talked to Vijong Mua about health equity. And when people are critical of the council for getting involved in affordable housing and transit and how they're all connected, uh, I just dismiss that criticism outright and say, we, we've inherited a region where those types of planning decisions have driven uh, where people live and work and, and have access to transportation. Now we need to try to figure out how to correct some of those decisions. Um, how do we have more transit access to where it's needed and how do we, how do we provide that in a way that, that is fair, frankly, um, rather than just build highways through neighborhoods and, and condemn land and throw people out and displace people. And have you created any mechanisms to also, I mean, increase the participation of those communities in the actual planning and mm-hmm. decision making as to how to make those, you know, investments in the communities? Absolutely. I'd say a couple different things. One is, is on a project by project basis, we have an aggressive outreach and, and public engagement process that uh, has both sort of community engagement in the planning side as well as involvement in the decision making going forward. Uh, The Botno line comes to mind immediately. We have a quarter management committee for that project where community engagement stakeholders are sitting right at the table with elected officials making these decisions along with uh, with county and city lawmaker, uh, elected officials, city council members and the like. And and then from a more broad perspective, we have uh, form the Equity Advisory Committee, which is also informs much of the work that the council does. The question is, is how do we you know, put that into the council's culture and into the agency's kind of, into their, into their DNA so it outlasts us. It, you know, it's not something that we think is just a priority of just this council or just this administration, but it needs to be a part of how we do regional planning here. If people aren't involved. Couldn't agree more. Well, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks for riding with us. Uh, my that pleasure. Great. 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 Yeah, thanks. All right, thank you. Back in Minneapolis, we met up with State Senator Scott Dibble to talk about land use, Minneapolis's growing residency, and what that means for transit planning. We walked to the location where the Southwest Light Rail is going to come through the Calhoun Commons area of Minneapolis on its way to the Southwest Metro's suburbs. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. Wonderful. Glad that you could be here with us this morning. Oh, it's a beautiful morning. Glad it is to be a beautiful here. morning in Minneapolis. So, can you set the stage for us a little bit on where we are and where we're going to trek to? Sure. So we're uh, we're standing at Calhoun Commons on the north shore of beautiful Lake Bidemakaska. 
In case you haven't followed the story, the Minneapolis Park Board voted earlier this year to recommend restoring Lake Calhoun's name to Bede Makaska, its original Dakota name. There are a few more bureaucratic steps to make it final, and signage still shows both names for the time being, but area residents are beginning to embrace not invoking the name of an avowed slavery advocate when talking about this beautiful lake. Interestingly, all around here, this area is being developed at a very, very rapid pace with lots of apartment buildings that probably aspire to be condos at some point in the future. People are clearly moving here in big numbers because they want to live in an urban setting with transportation alternatives, nearby amenities, whatever those are, shopping, restaurants, work, worship opportunities, recreation, etc. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with spaces like this in the future uh, with these big huge parking lots that clearly are out of step with what people are wanting in the marketplace now for their lives. As Minneapolis has continued to evolve, new challenges lay ahead. We were thinking part of the reason we picked this location is it seems like it's exactly as you're describing kind of the, the confluence of kind of car-centric, parking lot heavy, people buzzing around getting to work, but um, we're also kind of at the intersection of where Midtown Greenway and Kenilworth right. hit each other, and then this is near the site for the Westlake platform for Southwest Light Rail. Yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent point. So. Uh, a little over 20 years ago when I was working for uh, Councilmember Mead, and she was arguing for a more urban form of development. She was pretty far ahead of her time. That was really the debate in Minneapolis. Like, okay, so there, there are developers willing to put money and investment, and um, we're desperate because the suburbs are kind of eating our lunch, and this is what people want. They want suburban style, urban form. There was a lot of debates about infill housing, and so if you see around Minneapolis, um, the housing that went in at that time, we were just grateful for any new housing, uh, trying to attract some population back to the city. And um, all of those houses don't look anything like city houses. Um, single family, very, I mean, you would think you're in the middle of a subdivision in the middle of Apple Valley. And the argument was that's what the market demands, that's what it wants. My boss vehemently disagreed, thought at a minimum, if we're gonna be building single family, we should at least build it to the architectural style that's in keeping with the you know the same rhythm and pattern and texture uh, that already exists in Minneapolis. Ideally, we should be building multifamily with common green space and you know and uh, sidewalks and, and that sort of thing. Um, she lost out at the time, but not long after, we saw a huge change in sensibility. And what's happening now, of course, is the population growth in both Minneapolis and St. Paul in the core cities is outpacing population growth in the suburbs or any part of any other part of the state such that I think when we have redistricting occur in a few years um, we're gonna gain a little relative to the other parts of the state political power mm -hmm. um, you know it's been dissipating and dispersing for quite a while we've lost a full uh, legislative district in the, in, the, in the last couple of cycles and we might either hang on to what we have or gain a little bit in terms of, of strength. It's all relative, you know, we have five senators and, you know, out of 67, you know, maybe we'll have five and a half or six out of, out of 67, but at least we're holding our own and, and uh, you know, attracting population back. At one time, Minneapolis had about 500,000 people and we dropped down to less than 350,000. I think we're on our way back up and we're past 400,000 people in Minneapolis. So. It's a testament to uh, what people want and the quality of life and what they're looking for, which is a direct variance to the kind of pattern and style of life. Uh, so when you, when you see these growing numbers, and obviously the market can move faster than government in many ways, where we can build buildings, we can bring in spaces to live, how does that also outpace the speed with which we can correct for adequate green space, adequate transit options? What does that do to those discussions? Well, it's a real challenge because, of course, you need the supporting infrastructure, and that's about public policies and allocation of public resources. And so uh, you need uh, the kind of zoning to follow what people are looking for so that you can build denser housing um, and you can uh, allow for 
uh, the, the green space, either new or reinvesting in, in what is. And that was actually a, a big debate over the Capitol. There needed to be some authorizing legislation, for example, on green space so that, like in other developing parts of, of our state, um, there's a, a little impact fee that comes with new housing, a little bit of a surcharge on, on every unit um, that's paid that gets invested in park amenities mm -hmm. and recreational amenities in the area that's going to be served by the new population so that there isn't an overabundance of pressure on the existing facilities that have already been paid for by folks uh, who, are, who are already there. So this is our very last episode of season one. We're now calling it season one officially. Um, so we're looking ahead and we've been looking at these big human dimensions around commuting and transportation throughout this 10 episode series. Things like health equity, livability, affordability. We're looking forward now. So we're at the end and we're thinking about kind of the aspiration and where can we go next and what does that look like for Minneapolis and what do we need to be thinking about beyond the things we've already talked about today to get there. Do you have any thoughts on where you see our biggest opportunities or our biggest stumbling blocks? So much to say. <laughs> <laughs> and we're especially interested yeah. from you because, you know, when we've asked this question of others, usually what we have heard as being the stumbling block is oh. the legislature. Right, right. <laughs> so let me say that, you know, I'm a pretty harsh critic of the legislature and my legislative colleagues who um, I feel like live in a, a bubble informed by, you know, the 1950s and the 1960s. And, uh, you know, I won't, I won't shrink from that. But I'll also say that they are reflecting the larger prevailing politics that brought them to the legislature. They're reflecting, you know, the influences and forces that shape the decisions that they make, whether it's interests that are actively pushing an agenda and a point of view or the absence of pressure um, that might push them in a different direction. So, you know, I've been pretty critical of the legislature for its failure to support a comprehensive, robust package of investments in transportation to prepare ourselves for the emerging economy and a growing population and a workforce um, that is looking for something different and addressing fundamental issues of equity and opportunity uh, for people who lack that right now, lack the full ability to participate in our community, in our civil society, in our democracy. And, and it's been frustrating because I've been working on those issues for a long time, since I was pretty young, pretty young civil rights, social justice activist, and we've had golden opportunities that we completely squandered. Uh, in the past to pass that, that robust package, but something was missing such that, you know, it wasn't a political imperative to pass those bills. So it's a reflection of, of something larger that, that's going on. So the stumbling block, if you will, certainly is the legislature and legislators who lack imagination, or who lack good information, or responding to deep-pocketed corporate interests or some, some ideology. Um, but it's also uh, a lack of a compelling drive to do this. Um, so that's on me, that's on a lot of people who, who see that we need to do this mm -hmm. and haven't been able to drive the narrative or create the political capital and the political will and the push uh, to, to make it so. And now we're going to talk specifically about what's happening in the near future with the expansion of the light rail. So how close are we right now to where the potential platform would go in it's actually just behind Whole Foods. Okay. So So on this side of the south side of uh, where Lake Street and Minnetonka Boulevard are running together? Well, it's underneath the uh, kind of where the bridge overpasses. Okay. So, so do you want to walk over there and yeah, sure, take a look? Sure. All right. Yeah. What's the best? Uh, Here's a I'm conundrum. To think, uh, that way and around? Like to Excelsior? Or up and around? Because there's think, a bunch of streets that don't go through. I think if we can get behind Whole Foods, my, my only thing I'm trying to figure out is if we go behind Whole Foods. Mm. That way or behind? Let's go. I, yeah. I know that we can get okay. behind Whole Foods. Great. That mm -hmm. way it might be the longer route. Sure. That's okay. On the other hand, we might not get hung up. Yeah. Or get in a loading dock. 
Now by the future site of the Southwest Light Rail platform, we can see freight rail moving through, as well as bikers, walkers, and even segwayers enjoying the Greenway. Segway is going by a whole parade of segways is a great example. Lake is Lake Calhoun or I don't know. We're trying to go around the lake. I don't even know which one we're going. We can't even read a map. Sure. Orient here. Okay, he's Thanks. gonna give us All right. guy. So let's uh, let's pull up uh, i up my little map Thank here. You guys. Yeah. Yeah. No. No worries. This is State Senator Scott Dibble, so he's oh my gosh here to help. <laughs> Sorry. I'm, I'm Hi, from State the government. Senator. I'm here to help. Yes, exactly. <laughs> With our tourists on their way, we talk about the transit development coming to this space and what Senator Dibble hopes will come from it. So uh, just a little bit about this spot, if you're interested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, please. Um, Again, uh, you know, I think we had this conversation offline earlier about my views on Southwest LRT and how I'm mostly for it, but I think there's a lot of lost opportunity in terms of the alignment that they selected, and so I regret that, um, both in terms of its ability to influence urban forms of land use and uh, give people who need access to jobs and opportunity, uh, greater access to jobs and opportunity. I think it lacks that quite a bit, and, you know, there's an environmental consequence because this is a really nice kind of wonderful park-like area with trees and a bikeway and it goes by the lakes and you know so I just think there's some real lost lost opportunity. One of the issues of course is the fact that freight rail comes to this area and it's going to be in conflict with, mm -hmm. with light rail because they're located so close. The solution to that was create a shallow tunnel and part of the, the narrowest part of the corridor and the like. But another uh, kind of complication that it created is the fact that you know, people can't walk across uh, existing freight tracks, and so um, the only ability to access light rail is going to be from this side, the south side of the tracks, um, necessitating a very complicated and expensive uh, elevator-type system over here to get people kind of up. People have to go up the bridge and then access stairs or an elevator where the Lake Street Bridge crosses over the corridor as well, instead of just being able to walk from the neighborhoods up there north of the freight mm -hmm. rail alignment mm -hmm. and the like. So, To hear more about just how difficult it can be to get around with a disability that makes walking difficult or even impossible, take a listen to episode 8 of Here to There, where Laylee and I went on an accessibility walk in Highland Park. It's really interesting how these decisions get made in terms of these major transit investments and their alignments and the like. I think a lot of the dynamic was driven by you know, the western suburbs who really, really do want, and, and I think it's great, an efficient transit connection to the core city, to the central business district, that's all to the good, and that's a benefit to the region um, so that we're not dispersing you know, some of those major employment centers mm -hmm. uh, beyond where we could. We have more efficient use of land, but in terms of, of real service to folks who are already in the city, to the environmental issues, um, to potential, I mean, we're not going to be building any, you know, dense housing and, right. and uh, businesses mm -hmm. in this really long, you know, mm -hmm. two, three mile stretch mm -hmm. um, that's basically parkland. So that's a lost opportunity as well. Yeah. So what I hope happens as a workaround, if you will, is that uh, we create a, a really, really strong transit connection across the Greenway. 29th Street corridor that shoots east and west across. And there is a, you know, conceivably kind of a hybrid LRT streetcar that would connect the green line to the blue line at Hiawatha, mm -hmm. um, you know, in the, in the space of about 10, 15 minutes. And that would be a very, very strong connector mm -hmm. um, that would have a lot of additive value. So we'll see mm -hmm. if that comes to pass or not. Again, we're kind of dead in the water on these transportation investments in Minnesota, so mm -hmm. that'll necessitate a fairly dramatic political yeah. change. Well, this was great. great. This was yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your time this morning. Absolutely. Last but certainly not least, we go back to St. Paul for Minneapolis, this time with MnDOT Commissioner Charlie Zelli, who took us in one of the electric fleet vehicles owned by the Department of Transportation. Morning. Good morning, Laura. It's exciting to be here with you. Yeah, well, you're nice to come along with me. Here in my garage. Yes, here in your beautiful garage. <laughs> the commissioner really does have a beautiful garage, and in it is a Chevy Volt, the plug-in hybrid that we'll take today from Lake of the Isles to the Capitol. It's a great car. I mean, it is yeah. a wonderful drive. You'll see in a minute, it's very quiet, very practical, and uh, we're thinking about more and more how we can get 
our uh, carbon footprint and our fleet uh, averages down for the entire state of Minnesota. There's people using them. If you took a bolt to Brainerd, would there be somewhere to charge it? You know, more and more there's uh, charging stations being developed, both from the private sector, people realize mm -hmm. that's a good idea. And then also uh, we've actually helped fund with some government federal grants uh, and working with the MPCA, the Lucia Control Agency. We have uh, a number of charging stations around the metro. We're looking at putting them in rest areas and uh, actually part of the VW settlement that's coming might very well be used for charging stations. Oh yes, the Volkswagen settlement. We know it well. Minnesota will receive $47 million over 10 years as part of the $2.9 billion payout VW is making after a California federal court found it guilty of cheating on federal emissions tests. We talked about it in episode two of Here to There, and there's plenty of information on the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency's website, which we'll link on the podcast website. Here's a little mock-up sign, alternative fuels corridor, actually put on the side of my garage. It is... Um, those much larger signs are going to be on I-94 from Fargo mm -hmm. all the way to the city. In fact, we signed this agreement for uh, an alternative corridor, really electric cars, uh, all the way through to, to Michigan. Well, before we leave the garage, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about this beautiful piece yeah, of equipment. Yeah, isn't that a great one? The iZip. That's my electric bike. Okay. And uh, when I worked at Jefferson Lines, uh, it's only four and a half miles from this location and with a bike uh, trail the entire way. So I was very fortunate to live here close, not far from work and actually faster and more convenient to, to uh, ride an electric bike. And the reason electric bike, I mean, I had another bike and maybe on a cooler day, that would be nice too. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I never had a shower at work, so it was kind of <laughs> nice that you could surprise people sometimes. I'm wearing a tie and a suit and I have my briefcase in the back of the bike and uh, I just toddle off to work with my electric assist. It actually is a pedal bike but it has a lithium battery and looks like a normal bike but it has a little power assist so it can go up to 15, 16 miles per hour and and, uh, and maybe a range of about 20 miles. So. Does it surprise other bikers that are like, how is that guy going so fast? <laughs> I did surprise one guy. I was in downtown Minneapolis. And he was all decked up in biking gear, and I was wearing a suit. And, and he looked at my bike, and, he, and actually, it was, it's kind of a great-looking bike. And he said, wow, that's, that's a really nice, classic-looking bike. And I said, well, thank you. And he goes, J -j -j but it looks kind of clunky. Is it hard to pedal? And I was like, you know, not so bad. And then I felt kind of embarrassed. I didn't want to tell him that it's electric. So when the light turned green, I just, just, Smoked him. just took <laughs> off. <laughs> I don't know what he thought. That guy's really strong. <laughs> Yeah. Well, great. Should we get underway? Should we get on? Yeah. Come on in. Sure. All right. Here's uh, whoever wants to be in the front seat. I will with the recorder. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, Lily and I keep saying that our next cars are going to be electric. Absolutely. I'm ready to sell the one we have now. And I am really sold. And uh, the other thing, it's very electronic. You can hear every mm -hmm. warning signal. And I drove a very sporty expensive European car and when I started driving this car I said you know what this has more torque than that other car mm -hmm. and I think that uh, I've been sold that my next car would be electric your next car may drive itself my next car well there's that that would be mm -hmm. even better how has the pilot project for the self-driving bus been going a bit more about my question here. The Minnesota Department of Transportation launched a project exploring driverless buses earlier this year. The chief motivation in testing out this technology is the potential to provide a safer drive for passengers and operators. You can learn more about transit operators in episode five of Here to There, where we talked about employment and transportation with union president Mark Lawson. Well, we're really in the process of scoping and finding partners, and we'll be putting out an RFP to look for a manufacturing partner. Um, but um, I think it's going well. It really is interesting. I mean, it opens up this whole new world where autonomous driving. But, you know, I think, particularly having been in the bus industry for years, I understand it. We put so much on bus drivers to operate the bus, to be the safety person to be the 
you know, the temporary maintenance person, to be the customer relations person, to be the the uh, route manager, to you know, and with all the digital kind of operating requirements, uh, I think it's asking so much. So the idea of actually having all the electronic features that help drive the bus doesn't necessarily replace the driver. It just makes the driver focus on on important customer and logistical issues. Because I think it still is important to have an operator there. Now, see, this interchange is a confluence mm -hmm. of freight rail, the major bike, Kenilworth bike path, mm -hmm. uh, coming from several directions, Cedar Lake, two or three different roads. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's definitely very gnarly. And I think when Southwest Rail comes through, some of this can be mm. kind of cleaned up. But it's uh, so part of this community is to show you uh, my neighborhood. The reason we're going around through the local roads around Lake the Isles is I can go the other way to 394, but with the tunnel restricted, ah, yes. uh, it is a very congested area. So like every good commuter, I know which way, which time of day might be a different way to, uh, to work. What's your perspective on how Minnesota's doing and the critical things that we need to be doing to keep moving forward? Well, great question. It's ones we're all thinking about, and it's really a mixed report card. I think Minnesota is doing incredibly well in terms of uh, a lot of the innovation, a lot of the local thinking, um, technology certainly, planning. The fact that transportation, land use, economic development, uh, environmental quality, uh, how people live is really interconnected and I there's a growing kind of understanding that that's true and, and uh, I think one of the frustrations when you get to legislation to uh, provide more funding or even policy is that uh, different committees and different funding streams that are overseen uh, are very bifurcated. We get into our own little silos. It's like you no know, roads and bridges in the state highway system, which is really a little more than 10,000 miles out of 140,000 miles of roads. And uh, transit, very bifurcated. It is the metro transit, it is greater Minnesota transit. And uh, the reality is all modes uh, kind of work together. So there's no way we could have a robust transportation system without all of the elements and all the elements uh, working well uh, together. And uh, when I'm driving here to work, you know, sometimes we're on park board property. Now I'm going on city of Minneapolis property and then I'm going to come up to a county road and then onto a state road. Well, I don't think the public really cares or knows you know, who is the road authority on any particular piece of pavement? And yet the funding is very uh, uh, mixed up. And, but all of them are, uh, I would say, the word undercapitalized. There really is a need to maintain these potholes, to uh, build up uh, and maintain and preserve the system we have. And when you think about the future, we need more expansion. But that expansion is going to come with the help of technology, with the help of transit. And uh, we know for a long vision, we need more resources. And that's where your voice and so many others coming to the Capitol and saying, we really need this for our future. And it's not just individual convenience. It's really how we can compete as a region and as a state. So uh, it's going to continue to be a big debate. Speaking of that big debate, we saw this play out in the most recent legislative session. The outcome was a mixed bag. The good news is there was additional funding, and uh, it was an allocation of general fund toward roads and bridges. Um, some additional funding for transit, but only for one biennium, biennium only for the next two years. And uh, really almost zeroes out some of the metro transit funding uh, in the next uh, biennium or future years. And I think that's going to set up a really difficult debate because without the bedrock of the bus system for transit here in the metro, it'll be very difficult for not just the jobs of those that operate the system, but more importantly for those that access their jobs that have no other way of uh, getting to work. And, and maybe you could have a car, and a car is a very expensive thing to own by yourself, no matter what the age of the car, but it gets even more expensive when you have to pay for parking, when uh, your employer uh, may be a great distance away. And so 
Uh, the fact that transit not only helps get people to work, but also helps employers uh, attract uh, and retain uh, good employees. Mm -hmm. And I've heard this from business owner after business owner and large corporate CEOs to the smaller little uh, shop on the street that uh, workforce and attracting people is their number one issue and transportation is one of the key components. Many cases transportation like car ownership and parking and insurance for cars exceeds what people pay for their apartments or for their housing. So light rail has been kind of held out as a boy, that's a waste of money. Uh, but the arithmetic and the uh, results are really mm -hmm. overwhelmingly clear. And those that have held up uh, it as a problem are generally speaking to Greater Minnesota, saying that that money could have gone to Greater Minnesota, which is simply not true. Mm -hmm. Actually, it comes from a source of funding, either federal money or local uh, sales taxes or county, uh, a mix of county funding. Um, so it actually, I think, benefits uh, Greater Minnesota, and all those county commissioners that I've spoken to in Greater Minnesota uh, actually support uh, transit build-out in the Twin Cities because they certainly visit the cities, and mm -hmm. they, they don't mind congestion relief or, or ease of getting around from the airport or to downtown or mm -hmm. from between the two cities. And um, the other thing is that when we poll in uh, the Greater Minnesota, they're pretty strong uh, interest in light rail, so I, I don't understand why it's a, a debate, but it's one that kind of like uh, a lot of issues becomes more political than, uh, than fact-based. Yeah, well, no kidding. Yeah. Do you think it's less the very rural and more the ex-urban that has their hackles raised by it? You know, because I, they see it but don't necessarily... Depends who you talk to. You know, I mean, uh, talk to David Hand, who lost his seat because he was opposing uh, light rail out in Eden Prairie. Yeah. I mean, if you talk to people who are living in Eden Prairie or live in Dakota County who are taking express buses into downtown, uh, if we kind of point out, actually, the express buses are funded through uh, some of these transit funding, so you'll lose that. Mm -hmm. And they're like, oh, you're kidding. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. So I think the chambers of commerce have been pretty smart to go out to suburban park and rides and say, uh, you're one of the first who's going to lose. And so I think that it's better awareness mm -hmm. that actually some of the uh, services that we really count on um, uh, are actually part of this funding puzzle mm -hmm. uh, will help build support. But, you know, it's as much education and as, it, as it is uh, political advocacy, and mm -hmm. I think so often we take some of the basic services for granted and uh, because I think we have uh, a tremendous uh, uh, quality of life here in Minnesota and we have a great economy and and I find it very funny uh, that uh, some detractors of transit are pointing to, to and actually saying that MnDOT and Met Council are helping uh, create more congestion um, by focusing on transit and uh, by focusing on and uh, being open to bike biking and uh, and other and other ways to get to work and uh, they point to Kansas City as a great example of a, a, a place that doesn't uh, emphasize transit and does more on roads and they have less congestion. They also have less of an economy. I mean, it's like you know the thing that creates congestion is that people are actually here and actually right. going to work because right. there is work. You know, so I've had it hysterical. So the best way to stop congestion is to close businesses and have people move away. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and if that's the future we want, um, and it's not what I want, I think that uh, uh, it'll be a, a really a, a sore point. And I believe there's been plenty of research that has shown that more roads lead to more congestion. There are plenty of sources I could cite here to back up Laura, but instead, Head over to the heretotheirpodcast.org website for additional resources supporting this episode. Well, it's ironic. Yeah, whenever we build a new lane, it, is, uh, it just either uh, pushes the congestion point uh, farther down the road or it induces more traffic. And um, so I'm a big proponent of uh, what we call managed lanes, our min pass lanes, which actually incents people to, be, to carpool and it gets traffic to flow more freely, and it adds more capacity even more than one new general purpose lane. So, mm. you know, when we think about the future of technology and 
autonomous cars. What interests me more is the connected cars, how we have, will have cars that talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, from my perspective, they'll talk to the road. We'll have uh, cars being able to be more uh, efficient in terms of their spacing. We'll have uh, all the active control of the highways that we do uh, through signals and through lane closures and signs will all be done more directly to the car itself, not just to the driver. Mm -hmm. This All this area is MnDOT land. We've had uh, a number of issues with uh, homeless encampments mm -hmm. uh, throughout the metro. We, I've been part of a Ending Homelessness Council, which mm -hmm. is housing and human services. Mm -hmm. And you think, what is transportation doing there? Well, we've worked to train our maintenance workers to sure. be respectful. And part of it is out of hygiene to continuously clean and work with shelters, mm -hmm. uh, but kind of understanding that this is a societal issue and you can't just uh, solve it with one, one particular area. As you can tell, keeping highways functioning and clean and aiding those who are in need of it on or around roadways requires a coordinated team behind the scenes. We have one big center in Roseville called the Regional Transportation Management Center. Okay. It looks like a big trading floor. There's mm -hmm. flat screen TV, TVs on the entire side of, the, of this basketball court uh, sized room. And people with their headphones and their microphones mm -hmm. and they're, they're controlling and they're working with the signals, the signs, and all these cameras. There's a camera mm -hmm. up there. They can watch every part of the most parts of the state and uh, they can uh, uh, both emergency vehicles or our first uh, help, our little green trucks to go and help mm -hmm. people change their tires, mm -hmm. uh, give them some gas. And we have found to keep congestion moving, one of the best investments we have is a fleet of little pickup trucks I've that seen those. Get, they get people up and going. And people mm -hmm. say, like, let me pay. I had a, an incredible email last night from somebody who said, I can't believe it, these two people were there right away, they fixed our tire, we offered them something, they refused to take it, because actually it's, it's far more effective and efficient uh, for us just to do the work, mm -hmm. give them gas, and get them on their way. And so uh, people don't often appreciate that we're... And they've got those nice arrows that really help direct the traffic around. They do huge signs, so they're up. If there's ever an incident, they keep highway safety. So who do you call? Is that you've made a 911 call to say, help, I broke down on the side, or 311? We'll generally know because of the cameras. Oh. We're watching everything. Oh. We'll see stuff. We'll see stuff before we get 911 calls. And if you really want traffic to keep moving, seamless merging can go a long way. The commissioner has an excellent idea for improving our state's notoriously terrible time with it. So this is where I think we should have adult training on how <laughs> to merge, because I find Minnesotans... Minnesotans have some of the strangest merging... <laughs> they have strange habits. traffic Lily, behavior. Yeah, Lily's from, not from here. And You're not from here. Oh, okay, well, it's really me. No, I'm from the East Coast. I grew up in New Jersey, you know, and... <laughs> I had this great I had this great idea that we would really instead of having required training we'll import about 3000 drivers from Boston and New Jersey oh, good Lord. and just have them drive around yeah. for a while you know and just kind of teach people As we drive along 94 into St Paul from Minneapolis we go right through the Rondo community This isn't the first time we've heard about it in this episode and it's not the first time we've discussed it directly as we did in episode 3 on connectivity and more indirectly as we did in episode 9 on equity Clearly there were groups that were left out of discussions when these highways were initially put in Can you talk about the the very different perspective now on including you talked about it a little bit about being where people are right. um, to have those conversations and get their feedback What's the very deliberate steps that you're taking to bring in other voices? Well, first, it was probably the most humbling experience of my life two years ago, being invited to a healing and reconciliation ceremony at what will be now Rondo Plaza, outdoors, 95 degrees. I was probably one of five white faces in a big audience, lawn chairs, and they talked and told stories about what happened in the 60s when 94 was built and how it bifurcated a neighborhood, it decimated Rondo Avenue and, and a lot of the culture and the people that were living there. And so uh, the first step in, in 
for me to stand before that group and to apologize. I mean, really, to say I'm sorry. I, we we could not and would not do that now. And the reason why is I think we consider the neighborhoods, but we consider what the purpose of the transportation is. And it's not just to get as much capacity as possible. It's about how do you uh, enhance the livability. And, and, and frankly, they're not mutually exclusive. We know with good design and new techniques that we don't have to just do that kind of uh, construction. And, and frankly, it could have been, we could have situated 94 in a better place. Mm -hmm. uh, but here it is. And so I think that that was a real step toward uh, partnering with the Rondo community and others along the route, Seward, North Minneapolis, I mean, you name it, where these uh, neighborhoods have been really marginalized in many, in many ways by the highway. And uh, so how do we reconnect the neighborhoods while we're reconstructing? And so I think we've now set up a whole office, we call the I-94 planning group there in the Midway, mm -hmm. who are really resourcing and spending time. And we've actually helped uh, sponsor uh, documentaries uh, to uh, really understand the past, because, of course, you learn from the past. We'll link to some documentaries on the Here to There website. In the meantime, don't miss Episode 7 of Here to There, in which we talk about social cohesion and some of the less tangible but equally pernicious effects of inequity and the role that transportation can play in exacerbating or ameliorating them. We're now pulling into the MnDOT parking structure on the Capitol grounds, where we get a behind-the-scenes look at the many vehicles the MnDOT team uses to connect and interact all over the state. For example, we'll see an engagement van that MnDOT uses to talk with individuals at festivals, parks, etc. Check out the pictures on our website. This is like an inside look at the MnDOT fleet. So here's just this uh, van. And where we go, we, 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 we bring van, we bring audiovisual equipment, we bring people. So why we have made this into kind of a living um, engagement. We just park it near a festival and we give kids and whoever, adults, um, magic markers and we let them just draw all over the car. <laughs> oh, I see. And like in the, in yeah. the talk bubbles here? Yeah. And so they, uh, it's been clean, but the, they'll, people will fill in oh, the, sure. the colors and they'll write new comments. Say I, and they'll circle. I want to take a plane, or they'll, or they'll say, uh, you know, why can't I do this at school? Or hurry up, Harry. I mean, people write in their sure. own little stories. And uh, while they do that, we have people who kind of talk and explain what the different choices are. And the whole point of this is that it's not just roads. You can see mm -hmm. uh, all the different, uh, and it's also about Main Street. It's mm -hmm. it's the lakes that we swim in. It's the air we breathe, and uh, we try to put buses. And, and so it's. It, you know, more than anything, you know, facts are important, and we're always trying to be fact-based, but what compels people are stories, and that, uh, you know, the best way to the brain is through the heart, and, we're, and that's not lost on us, so we have to appeal to where people are, what people really care about, and, uh, you know, that's what I think resonates mm -hmm. kind of on a person-by-person -person basis, so we have to get that into our own thinking first, and we're really doing well on that, both on the idea of inclusion, on the empathy, on understanding that our role is to support others, and then uh, getting out and telling our story by letting people tell their story. I think the traditional thing was the highway engineer shows up in a white jacket and a pocket projector and says, this is the way it's going to be, and we know and you don't, which is <laughs> trying to turn that upside down. And what excites me about transportation is that it's actually about everything else. You know, it's, it's about, you know, what we all care about and, uh, and uh, ultimately about community and people. And, and yet we so focus on concrete and pavement and bridges and, uh, you know, that's important. But it's, the, it's all there serving something. Well, thank you. We couldn't agree more and this was really fun. Really fun. I've so enjoyed being with you all. Now you, now you know where I live. Now yeah. you know how I live. <laughs> And back once again in the studio, let's wrap things up, Lily. Okay, but there is so much more to say. We barely scratched the surface of these enormous topics and even bigger implications. Um, we certainly haven't solved anything, although I'm not sure anyone can. 
Well, that's true. But with over 6,000 listens since we launched this thing in June, we've at least answered the question that these topics are timely and worth further discussion. Then I guess it's as good a time as any to announce that we'll be back with a second season of Here to There that will continue to look at the human dimensions of the systems and structures around us and how we can build greater equity, efficiency, and collaboration into where we're going next. We're still working on the details, uh, but stay subscribed and we'll share more as it's coming together, likely around the 2018 legislative session. If you're looking for us between now and then, you can find past episodes and resources at heretotheirpodcast.org. Connect with us at apparatusmn.org, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as ApparatusMN, and on trains, buses, and at the Capitol, where we work on transportation equity, social justice, environmental issues, and how technology and systems come together. A big thanks to our podcast partner, Transit for Livable Communities, our editor and producer, Ian Lovett, at Studio Americana, Bubba Holly, who provided our soundtrack, Minneapolis Downtown Council, who sponsored this episode, our guests in studio and across the metro, our husbands and kids, and of course, to you for listening week after week. We'll join the ride again soon. Mm-hmm.